So tonight I want to talk about um, integrity and how essential it is for us to cultivate um, on this spiritual journey. So I want to begin reading you just the beginning of a chapter in this book, Loving Kindness by Sharon Salzberg. This is chapter 11, Living Our Love. We once brought one of our teachers to the United States from India. After he'd been here for some time, we asked him for his perspective on our Buddhist practice in America. While he was mostly very positive about what he saw, one critical thing stood out. Our teacher said that those practicing here in the West sometimes reminded him of people in a rowboat. They row and row and row with great earnestness and effort, but they neglect to untie the boat from the dock. He said he noticed people striving diligently for powerful meditative experiences but not seeming to care so much about how they relate to others in a day-to-day -day way. How much compassion do they express toward the plumber who's late or the child who makes a mess? How much kindness, how much presence? The path may lead to many powerful and sublime experiences, but the path begins here with our daily interactions with each other. So when the Buddha was teaching, he taught that in order for us to um, move into these deep states of freedom, we need to begin with the nitty and gritty of here and now. And I really like that because, because I like the way our practice is pragmatic in real life. It's not dogmatic academic in you know discussions, which are fun. I love those. Our practice is about what is actually happening in the lived moment and how are we responding to it. So the Buddha taught that you know eventually we do get to these meditative insights. And the ground, the ground that we need to walk on that not only brings us to insight, but also insight supports this, this same ground is the ground of integrity, is the ground of non-harming, of radical kindness. And I... I want to just name up front that when we're talking about integrity, which is, you know, variously called, I like the word integrity, so I'll be using that, but it's variously called ethics, morality, virtue. These are familiar ideas and they show up in all different cultures and religions and spiritual traditions. Um, the thing that, is really helpful for the many, many of us who rebel against rules 
is to understand that in this context, we would be practicing integrity, morality, virtue, ethics, not because we'll be punished if we don't do them, not to please someone or some being external to ourselves, but because kindness, integrity, morality, ethics are utterly bound up with our own happiness. And the wonderful thing about mindfulness is that that allows us to feel and see in real time whether this is true or not for ourselves. So the invitation is when we are in the midst of an act of patience or kindness or generosity or truthfulness or care, tolerance, when we're in the midst of an act of integrity, how does it feel in you? What happens in you? And the alternative is also true, using our mindfulness to see what happens to our internal state when we're causing harm in some way. What happens inside us? We have a lot of cultural denial and avoidance and minimizing and numbing and addicting and all kinds of ways in which we don't go inside. Mindfulness is inviting us to, to turn in and see and feel. And then we learn for ourselves. We see it for ourselves, the relationship between our our speech and actions and our internal state. There are stories that are told in the Buddhist tradition called Jataka tales. And um, they're sort of like, if you're familiar with Aesop's fables, they're sort of like that. Um, they're stories that you could sometimes tell to children about mostly animals, sometimes people who are lear- you know, learning or exemplifying different beautiful qualities. And the legend goes that these are all stories of the lives of the Bodhisattva before he became the Buddha, as he was perfecting all these different lovely qualities in his former lives. So they're stories of elephants who are generous and patient ox and, uh, you know, clever, you know, beautiful, caring rabbit and all these kinds of wonderful stories. Clever, brave. Um, what is that bird? I want to say it's a, what's the kind of bird that goes, Chicago, Chicago. <laughs> What is that? We all, oh, quail. Clever, wise quail is one of them. <laughs> but the story that I want to tell you right now is um, the story of a, a king, a, a royal leader who had no heir. And so he came up with a plan for how to find somebody to leave his legacy to. And this was his plan. He made an announcement to all of the of the land that anybody who could steal something with no one finding out would become his heir. So that's quite a quite an offer. So of course immediately the palace fills up with many, many people. 
bringing beautiful diamonds that they'd stolen, but no one had known about it. Elephants or beautiful tapestries, delicious food that they'd stolen and no one had known about it. They'd, they'd managed to do it without anyone finding out. And they even had proof no one could found out. And this leader turned them all away. And finally, um, someone came to the king with nothing and said, I can't steal anything with no one finding out because I would always know. And the king said, that's right. You got it. <laughs> you are the heir to my kingdom. And this story points to what happens when we are out of integrity. We're out of alignment. There's a, there's a feeling inside that doesn't feel good. If we can, you know, pretend it's not there, but it's there. We carry it. The pain of remorse. There are these natural human tendencies, um, which in Pali are called hiri and otapa, variously translated. I think um, maybe for me, the most useful translations hiri is conscience. And otapa is respect for others, awareness of our impact on others. And these are innate to us. And the Buddha taught them as great virtues. Even though they hurt when they activate, they hurt. You know, if we're out of alignment and hearing an otapa conscience and respect for others or, you know, remorse, awareness that we've caused harm and the pain of that doesn't feel good. It feels bad. And yet it's letting us know we're interconnected. And our actions have reverberations that go deep inside our own systems. So the specific ethical teachings in Buddhism for lay people um, will sound familiar as I you know, again, familiar in terms of all religions everywhere. And they're to not kill, not to steal not to cause harm with sexual energy, not to lie or use harsh speech, and not to misuse intoxicants such that we cause heedlessness. It's funny because it's only five. And I invite you, if you can think of another way that we can cause harm that doesn't land under one of those rubrics, it's hard to do. Those are kind of the five big ways we hurt ourselves and others in this world. The killing and violence. Taking what's not given. Misusing sexual energy. Speech. Cause a lot of harm with speech. And intoxicants that cause us to not have clarity. I've heard teachers say that if we could suddenly, someone could wave a magic wand and even one of those things could come into uh, alignment where we were all like not killing or not stealing or not 
misusing speech or sexual energy or intoxicants, even one of those would just vastly make the world a safer place. So those are the five. I, um, they can be phrased positively. I'm going to offer you, um, so rather than about abstaining, although abstaining is, is a good and helpful way to, to understand them can be also helpful to think of, of what the action is that's positive, that's cool related to each thing so from in the first one refraining from harming living beings that's correlated with practicing loving kindness well loving kindness is friendliness when we're in a space of loving kindness we're not trying to kill or hurt or harm anything and refraining from taking the non-giving is correlated with generosity Actually, not only are we not taking in, in generosity, but we're actually offering with a bow to our interrelatedness. Refraining from committing sexual misconduct is correlated with practicing contentment. Isn't that so interesting that we can practice contentment? You don't have to wait. It's like with happiness and peace too. We can practice these things. We don't have to wait for them to land when conditions are just right. Practicing contentment. Refraining from false or harsh speech is correlated with practicing truthful and kind communication. And just a little side shout out here to nonviolent communication. If anybody's into that, it's just really... A, a whole wonderful world. Um, and then the last one, refraining from intoxicants, interestingly, is correlated with practicing mindfulness. Because mindfulness is all about clarity. So, these are ways in which we express internal states of compassion. They go both ways. When we're practicing integrity, we're expressing internal states of compassion and loving kindness. And even if we're in distress inside with grief or anxiety or fear or whatever's going on, we're, we're out of balance if we choose to act from a place of integrity, that folds back into our internal experience. So last week I was talking about generosity and my incredible experience, which I repeat over and over, and I recommend that you, you use yourself as a science experiment on this and see how it works for you. My incredible experience of when I get depressed, that a really powerful antidote to depression is generosity, offering, doing something for the dog next door or my mom or, you know, um, lately I'm, I mentioned I'm giving bottles of water to homeless people. The connection 
there's something about the action that transforms the internal state. So that's the teaching and it's something you can also try in real life and see how it lands for you. One of the proximate causes or supports for practicing with integrity um, is to observe that life is challenging for everyone and that care and expressed kindness is in some ways, the only thing that makes sense. And so I want to share with you a poem that many of you have heard before, but like all good poetry, it bears repetition. called Kindness by Naomi Shihab Nye. Before you know what kindness really is, you must lose things. Feel the future dissolve in a moment like salt in a weakened broth. What you held in your hand, what you counted and carefully saved, all this must go so you know how desolate the landscape can be between the regions of kindness. How you ride and ride, thinking the bus will never stop. The passengers eating maize and chicken will stare out the window forever. Before you learn the tender gravity of kindness, you must travel where the person in a white poncho lies dead by the side of the road. You must see how this could be you. How he too was someone who journeyed through the night with plans and the simple breath that kept him alive. Before you know kindness as the deepest thing inside, you must know sorrow as the other deepest thing. You must wake up with sorrow. You must speak to it till your voice catches the thread of all sorrows and you see the size of the cloth. Then it's only kindness that makes sense anymore. Only kindness that ties your shoes and sends you out into the day to gaze, to purchase bread, only kindness that raises its head from the crowd of the world to say, it is I you've been looking for. And then goes with you everywhere, like a shadow or a friend. So two things about that. Once we discover the incredible power of kindness, both for how it impacts others and what it does for our own inner peace. It's like this secret in plain sight. It's like, then, then it's only kindness that raises its head from the crowd of the world to say, it's I you've been looking for. It's like this wonderful 
energy that we can always choose in a moment where we're mindful and aware, we can always make that choice, even in a really painful moment. What does love look like? In a painful moment that we're present and we want to choose kindness, it looks like compassion. In a sweet moment, it looks like appreciation. It's so exciting that we can use our mindfulness and tune into the moment and then invite up some kind of a kind response. And it can even be fun to play the edges of that. You know, you may be the sort of person who rescues a worm that's wriggling around on the pavement after the rain. Find the edges of integrity. Not that this is easy, you know, it's not easy. I remember learning that one of my teachers had had, had to make the very challenging decision to bring in some kind of pest control for all these ants, these ants that were like somehow gobbling up his roof. I don't quite understand it, but it was way out in rural. You know, we have to make these decisions. It's these precepts can push us out to these edges that can be challenging, complicated. And yet to the best of our ability, choosing kindness. And again, not, from that old sort of Western um, model of punishment or should, but because of what it does to our internal life. That's the main, I keep coming back to that because that's the main, main point I want to make. So when Buddha was teaching, he began with generosity. And then the second thing he taught was integrity. Then he moved on to simplicity, letting go. And then the fourth one was um, wisdom and mindfulness practices. Um, As we move from each of the, and then it goes on, there are 10 of them, the 10 paramis. As we move from each of these, into deeper and deeper and wider and wider practices of wisdom and compassion, um, they interrelate. So in the teachings about generosity, um, the Buddha taught that one of the primary ways we practice generosity is by giving no one cause to fear us. And that's easier said than done. Because with a word or a look, let alone larger reactivity, often warranted and righteous, we can become scary to a being. So it's not always easy. And yet, it's an incredible act to practice generosity so that we give no one cause for fear 
So this is a quote from Rick Hansen. When we live in a virtuous moral way, or the five precepts to not kill, steal, lie, intoxicate ourselves, cause harm through sexuality, we're acting from, uh, from deep generosity. Quoting Bhikkhu Bodhi, referring to the Angaratara Nikaya, by the meticulous observance of the five precepts, one gives fearlessness, love, and benevolence to all beings. If one human being can give security and freedom from fear to others by their behavior, that is the highest form of generosity one can give, not only to humankind, but to all living beings. Give security and freedom from fear to others by their behavior. So really the only way to practice that is to work with a lot of patience and self-compassion with our own reactivity. And how we work with our own reactivity is bringing mindfulness into a moment, noticing the potential rising, the the rising of, of a habitual reactive response. Taking a tiny pause and making a different choice. And mindfulness makes that possible. So mindfulness is a really important key aspect to integrity practice. When I experience remorse, I look back on my life and I and the, the things I've done where I feel remorse. It was always reactivity. There was something happening and I had some habituated reactive response. I had learned it and then practiced it unconsciously and then it showed up. Sylvia Borstein has a really interesting um understanding of the relationship between integrity and inner peace. She inner peace, she calls it uh she she says the practice of morality habituates the mind to calm. The Buddha calls that calm the bliss of blamelessness. A mind that isn't like reverberating with uh, being out of alignment is calm and balanced. So this is a quote from Sylvia Borstein. Again, the practice of morality habituates the mind to calm. When the mind is calm, there's generally enough composure in it to allow for reflection and enough balance to stay comfortable. A comfortable mind is unlikely to generate unskillful behavior because it doesn't need to leap impulsively after desires. It thinks before it acts. So, in other words, you know, it's sort of self-perpetuating. Once we've cultivated enough mindfulness to be able to begin to start making different choices in a moment that would normally trigger reactivity, even if it's just sitting on your hands for a second, you know, like, I can remember once a few years ago being on the phone with one of my brothers and 
he really startled me by being irritated with me about something. And I felt like I would wanted to react back, but instead I managed to like literally sit on my hands, even though my hands were on the phone. It's not like my hands were going to be doing anything, but sitting on my hands to say to myself, in this moment, just don't react. Give yourself a second here. You can feel the feelings. And it was a really good call. So I was able to, you know, later work that all out with him. So when we get more and more of those calm moments, then over time we've cultivated a calmer and calmer mind that is less likely to go immediately into that reactive stuff that we regret later. The, one of the primary Buddhist teachings is the Four Noble Truths. Um, the Buddha, when the Buddha came out of um, his awakening time underneath the Bodhi tree, the Four Noble Truths were one of the first things he taught. And the, the first truth is that suffering exists. Like, let's not be in denial about that. Suffering exists. The second truth is suffering occurs because we uh, we cling to we cling to a sense of self, we cling to the things we want, we push away the things we don't want. In other words, we're trying to control reality, and reality has its own thing going on. And the third noble truth is it's possible to let go of clinging and thus suffering. And then the fourth noble truth is the eightfold noble path, which is eight practices that support us in this process of letting go of clinging, letting go of reactivity, letting go of um, trying to control reality and getting rather in alignment with the truths of reality, which are that internal and external inner are, that our speech and behavior have a reverberation and effect, that dropping out of the thinking mind and into the present moment, mindfulness practice allows for clear seeing rather than coming from habituated old beliefs, all that stuff. So there are these eight um, aspects of the noble path and three of them, three of the eight are about integrity or ethical behavior. And they are wise speech, wise livelihood, and wise action. And it's interesting because speech, action and speech and livelihood can kind of show up in the action. They show up in the five precepts. So the five precepts to not kill or steal or misuse sexual energy or intoxicants, those are all actions. And then the fifth one, well, it doesn't show up fifth in the list, but the, the fifth one is speech. Speech is a big one.
And I don't know about you, but when I think about, about these five precepts and where am I interested in working, where do I have more that I, more to grow? Well, all five, but speech especially. Like, can you imagine if you took the Buddha's injunction to only speak when it's true and helpful? and otherwise choose noble silence? It's powerful. And wise livelihood of having a way to um, sustain ourselves that isn't causing harm. And then wise action of having behaviors that are sustaining and caring towards ourselves and other beings. So the Buddha, before he became a Buddha, but during that same lifetime, he was a prince or, or you know, yeah, basically a prince. And then when he was 29, he had these insights about uh, the inevitability of suffering. And he became a renunciate for seven years before he awakened and then taught for 45 more years. Well, when he had that moment where he saw the, he saw the heavenly messengers, what are called the heavenly messengers, he was actually in the town and he saw someone who was sick and someone who was very elderly and a corpse. And then he saw a renunciate and he decided, wow, you know, illness, aging, and death are real. No matter what, there's going to be suffering in this lifetime for each of us. I want to find out how we can transform that. I'm going to go become a renunciate. So he did that. Well, unfortunately, he had a new wife and an infant son when he left to become a renunciate. And there's various um, understandings about, you know, about that piece of his, of the Bodhisattva's story. Um, what ended up happening was his son became his, the Buddha's follower as a young man and ultimately awakened and found deep, deep peace and freedom. So there are teachings in the Buddha's, uh, in the Pali Canon, about the Buddha teaching to his son, Rahula. And one of those is on this topic, one of the teachings to Rahula is on this topic of um, ethical behavior, integrity. Rahula goes to the Buddha and asks, how, how do I contemplate action so that I know that it's wise. And the Buddha's response is to consider the effects of an action before, during, and after the action. At any point in an action, it's useful to consider the impact. So in other words, is what I am about to do for my own well-being and the benefit of others is what I'm currently doing 
for my own well-being and the benefit of others? And is what I just did for my own well-being and the benefit of others? Well, this is, you know, that's, that's, wow. That's a lot of scrutiny to be giving our actions. And it's really inviting like a level of awareness. And, you know, living in the modern age, like just thinking about being in the kitchen and what are these, what are the sources of these foods? And there's the plastic and the packaging and, you know, can be humbling and sometimes useful. So that teaching to Rahula is, is an invitation to us all. We can bring our mindfulness there in the in the wise action category. This is this is for my well-being and the well-being of others. And I love that, you know, and this is true of the Buddhist teachings, we we always include ourselves. Am I cared for in this action? Are others cared for in this action? So just keeping it real, this is a, an anonymous quote. I'm thankful that thus far today, I have not had any unkind thoughts or said any harsh words or done anything that I regret. However, now I need to get out of bed so things may become more difficult. Yeah. No. So another really important part of this process, not just with uh, with this particular teaching on integrity or these practices around integrity, but with all of these practices, totally essential is self-compassion and patience. The Buddha said that patience is the supreme virtue. We, we need it in order to be on this path. Lots of patience with ourselves, lots of self-compassion, lots of self-forgiveness. Just like in mindfulness practice, if we beat ourselves up for getting lost in thought, we're actually taking a step back. We have to like get lost in thought and actually somehow manage the Aikido of being cool with that. Like, yeah, I was lost in thought and that is totally just what happened and it's okay. And I'm coming back to the present moment for the 400th time in 10 minutes. And it's the same with integrity practice. Like I just blew it. I just said something I regret. You know, I just, you know, fill in the blank. Or this really awful thing I did 15 years ago is coming up for review. Sometimes happens, as we all know. Um, just letting ourselves be human and bringing in so much love and warmth and care in this process, this journey, this evolution that we're in. 
I feel hopeful about this evolution revolution that we're all a part of um, because we have uh, now we have neuroscience. So are these ancient wisdom teachings and they're becoming more mainstream and then they're supported by, by neuroscience, which is a whole new thing. It's like just within the last 20 years. So, you know, we could talk about integrity and then, you know, I could say, well, how is it? You know, I'm going for the short-term pleasures. You can believe what you want. I'm going to believe something else. And we've been doing that for millennia, you know, as humans. We're like, well, you know, so what about kindness? I'm feeling really enraged and I'm going to go, you know, kick someone. But now we still have these ancient teachings and we're still gathering in groups like this to talk about them and practice them. And now we have this wonderful other thing going on which is neuroscience, which is proving the veracity of these ancient teachings. It's so fascinating. It's like mindfulness, compassion, generosity, kindness, turn out to be when you put an fMRI on somebody's head and work with them on it, they turn out to be the things that create the most inner, exactly what the Buddha said, these states of freedom and peace. So we need patience and self-compassion and also faith and courage and persistence to keep coming back. Okay. Thank you for listening. I want to... um, open it up now to people here in the monastery and folks here online. If you have any comments, questions, inquiries, thoughts, challenges, yeah. Yes. So, <laughs> yeah. So Phil said was remembering that one of the things I said is that we can practice contentment rather than waiting that it comes to us. And he's saying, how do we practice contentment? One of the ways that there are several ways to practice contentment. And and, and Phil was joking. And he said, do you say just say? What did you say? I, I'm con- I'm content. Yeah. Um, it's sort of like that. It's it, the practice that I've learned that, that's specifically about contentment is to sit in mindfulness for a few moments. And even if there's discomfort in the system, whether that's physical pain or anxiety or grief or whatever, even with that as part of the landscape, to sit within the present moment and ask, what am I lacking right now? 
or what do I need in order to be happy? We did this exercise last week, I think. What do I need in order to be happy? And sometimes there'll be, you know, an answer, you know, and sometimes we can just drop into the present and see that in the moment, nothing more is needed. Yeah. When we're, when we're dropping the story, so we're dropping, what mindfulness does is taking us out of the wandering mind and we're, we're dropping past regrets and we're dropping future worries and we're just coming into the now. Thich Nhat Hanh says, present moment, wonderful moment, not because it's perfect, because most of the time it isn't, um, but simply because it's miraculous. And in its simplicity and miraculousness, it's enough. And there's contentment in that. So I'll sing you a song. I I wrote a song for families about the precepts, which I'll sing for you to close. Before I do that, I want to invite you to join me in um, choosing maybe, if you wish, one of the precepts to work with. I am presently working with speech, as I mentioned. I really really want to be kind and generous with my speech. I don't want to gossip. I don't want to criticize myself or others. So I'm working with my speech. But you could work with any of them in any way that might call to you. Like, you know, you, you know maybe you want to try being vegetarian for a week or around the you know, not killing, although that's one step removed and fully debatable, and I'm, I'm not even expressing an opinion on it, and I've been all over the map myself. But you can, you can see where there might be a little, a little interest or curiosity for working with any of these precepts. And so going forth, just in, that's just an open invitation. Okay, so last call for questions, comments, thoughts. Okay. So again, the precepts are not to kill, steal, misuse sexual energy, use false or harsh speech, or misuse intoxicants, but I wrote this song for families. I'm a teacher for the family program at Spirit Rock. So I took those five and I changed them to um, sort of more positive suggestions. (laughs) And the teaching here again is that we practice these actions because they make us happy.
Kindness makes me happy And it makes you happy too And so I want to remember There are five things to do Kindness makes me happy And it makes you happy too And so I want to remember There are five things to do If it's living, treat it gently Don't take what's not given to me Respect bodies and boundaries Including my own Tell the truth kindly Tell the truth kindly And choose healthy things to eat and drink To keep me clear and strong Because kindness makes me happy And it makes you happy too And so I want to remember There are five things to do <laughs> Thank you. All right. May the merit of our practice be for the benefit of all beings everywhere, including ourselves. May all beings everywhere be free of suffering and the causes of suffering. May all beings know peace and the causes of peace. Thanks so much for joining me tonight. Wishing you a great week. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.